This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 9. I have a phrase that I often say, and I say, I win regardless. So even though I didn't get to implement that project, I still learned a whole lot through that experience. I didn't see that silver lining at the time, but it came full force when, you know, several years later, here I was working on a different implementation that I was more prepared for because I had had that prior experience. How do you learn to become more resilient? What is the right and wrong way to think about setbacks in your career? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Suzanne Myers. Suzanne is the Chief Human Resources Officer at Arcosa, which is a publicly traded manufacturer of infrastructure-related products in the construction, energy, and transportation industries. Suzanne's responsible for leading the HR strategy and operations for Arcosa, which has over $2 billion in annual sales and 6,000 employees. Prior to becoming CHRO, Suzanne spent the majority of her career leading talent acquisition, where she developed a strong reputation for being a trusted business partner with excellent leadership skills. In our conversation today, Suzanne and I will discuss how being a talent acquisition leader prepared her to become a CHRO, why your employer value proposition should have three layers, and how to be resilient and overcome career setbacks and more. Suzanne, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. Tell us about your early career and how those experiences have helped shape you as a leader. What a lot of people don't know about me is my early career started in sales. So all the way back even into my college days, I waited tables all through college and, you know, Waiting tables is like selling, right? It wasn't, it didn't take me long to learn that I could upsell and increase my tab, you know, my ticket sales that would then increase my tip opportunity. So I, you know, even going back there and then my first jobs out of college were sales opportunities. And so I did sales for probably three to six years before I actually even gravitated into the HR space. What kind of sales were you doing? Um, I started off in doing telecom sales because that was right after, you know, telecom kind of had all of their changes. And so I was doing what something you can't do anymore as I would start at the top of a high rise building and literally go knocking on doors, trying to get them to transfer their telecommunications to the new provider. Wow, that is not easy. But really good life lessons no. in being aggressive, assertive. Yeah. And- being 22 years old, you know, hitting all these buildings. I look back now and I think, gosh, how, like, I had a lot of courage to do that. Because back then, too, women wore skirts, heels. I mean, you're, like, dressed in a full-on suit, which you don't see that very often anymore either. Okay. And so... Early career in sales, and now you are a chief human resources officer. It seems like you then switched into the majority of your career was in talent acquisition. 
Tell us about your career in talent acquisition and what makes a great talent acquisition leader. Yeah. So interestingly, my sales background, I became unhappy in a position that I held and applied to a position through a big national staffing firm. I didn't know it was a national staffing firm when I had applied, but I had gone in you know, for that interview. And after meeting with the team there, they were no longer than trying to sell me on this opportunity for their client. They were trying to recruit me to come and to work for them. And that's actually how I landed my first job in recruiting. And so that was really kind of the first step into HR. You know, back back at that time, recruiting wasn't necessarily a defined career path. In fact, I don't even know that the term talent acquisition was even widely used at that time. That was my first introduction into HR, the HR space. And then uh, probably maybe four years at working at the National Staffing Company, I applied for an internal corporate recruiter position. And then that's how I got in. So I started doing internal recruiting for a software company and ended up growing and developing their in-house recruiting team, uh, eliminating external recruiters altogether. So that was a pretty exciting uh, way to get integrated into the business as well, which of course is one of the key ingredients for success in human resources. How much do you think of talent acquisition or recruiting as sales versus something else? That's a great question. I think I think there's sales on all sides of it. You're selling your services and your skills to the hiring managers, right? You're influencing on both sides. You're influencing the hiring managers of how do you make a job fillable? Because that was always that was always something that I found myself doing because the managers wanted a million skills, which just didn't really exist. So you would have to influence those managers of what do you really need? What are your nice to haves? And help them make that job a fillable job. So influencing with the hiring managers, of course, has a sales component. And then also for the candidates, selling opportunities and experiences and really explaining the why. So that's how I correlated sales into my recruiting and even still stay with the HR, with the HR side. It's a lot of influence. It is. And I think HR is a lot of influence. So the skills have probably helped you well as you've moved up. You have spent a lot of your career in talent acquisition, and then you made a really big jump. But before we jump into being a CHRO, which is a really big and difficult job, talk about from your perspective, what makes a great talent acquisition leader? Because we know some of our listeners are in that space and continue to want to progress their career in talent acquisition and lead a bigger function or grow in that area. So what really makes a difference for you? The things that stand out to me is a great TA leader sees themselves as a business partner. If you're a recruiter or you have a whatever your title is, if you operate like you're an administrative support person, then you're that's not really going to get you to the level you want to get to. So being a business partner and really behaving like one within your role, I think, is one of the things that will really separate somebody and give them more opportunities to get connected with the business, but also you're going to build a lot more trust and credibility. Generally, I think and believe that hiring managers want help hiring. They want a partner to help them with making this hiring decision. It's typically kind of a scary thing for them. Nobody wants to make a bad hire. 
And so as a talent acquisition partner, you're exhibiting that you have skin in the game. You're going to give them hard feedback. You're going to tell them, you know, the real truth of what's happening or maybe even provide them feedback that you heard from the candidate around maybe what went well in the interview and what didn't go well in the interview. And sometimes that means giving some constructive feedback to the hiring manager. So I think the TA partner really drives that process as well. It takes time to earn trust and credibility. But if you're delivering consistently and adding value to the process, you're going to be viewed as a talent partner and more of an expert. And, and that's what they really want. Do you think talent acquisition is shifting a lot? It feels like it's really changing and has changed maybe since the pandemic, but even before that. But it's more pronounced now with the most recruiting on LinkedIn. It's digital. Like how, how has that shifted? What do you think talent acquisition leaders need to be strong in? I think it's actually come full circle. I think having the electronic and digital tool like LinkedIn are very helpful, but I also think that because they are another social channel, so to speak, they it's become very diluted. People aren't really monitoring their in-mail box very often because there's so much noise that you see in your inbox or even in your email box. So the best, I think the best recruiting is when you're still networking and making connections and getting to know the people in your industry or in your space that are going to help you get to top talent, get to leads in a different way. I think you have to do a little bit of all of it in order to see some success. I think part of the challenge is that, um, some of the recruiters, you know, that are earlier mid-career, they don't know how to do these things without the internet because it's just, they've always had the internet and the, these electronic tools. And so it's teaching them how to be a little bit more gritty. How do you put yourself in front of these people that you're wanting to talk to uh, outside of using LinkedIn? Because how do you really get the attention of your target audience. So it's a different, harder marketing uh, technique because of all of the social media channels that are out there. How do you really just, you know, make yourself different? Yeah, the challenge of breakthrough is real. And I think what I'm hearing you say is it's, it might be high tech, but it should be high touch. Right. I think yeah. the, other, the other thing that we, that I would suggest <laughs> is really know what your value proposition is. Because when you do finally get that candidate, you know, let's say on a phone call, if you're not nailing your value proposition in the first five minutes of the call, they're probably going to not be very interested. And then on top of that, I believe there's layers of value proposition and you need to make sure that you're selling the benefit to of what the company is, what's the company value proposition down to what's the department's value proposition for why you would want to work in a particular department, even down to the manager, why you would want to work for a particular manager. And it's coordinating all of that with the hiring manager and anyone on the interview panel so that you're selling a consistent message as well. And if you don't stop to think through what those value propositions are, and you do get a really great lead, maybe on the line, it doesn't take long for that lead to lose interest and fizzle out. Uh, it's a really interesting way to think about value proposition. And it's much more detailed than just the top line of the company. You led talent acquisition and then became a chief human resources officer. 
And how did TA or talent acquisition prepare you for that chief people officer role? And how did it not prepare you to be a chief people officer role? And how did you learn the other aspects of the job? That's a really great question. I sometimes ask myself that. But when I look back and reflect on my career as a talent partner and a talent advisor for all those years, I really touched many aspects of HR along the way. So if you're, you know, really behaving and operating as a consultant to the hiring managers, as a consultant to the business, uh, you're going to be touching many areas of HR, even though you may not recognize that. So first thing is really understanding the business. So to be a great recruiter, you have to understand the business. You have to know how to sell, you know, that opportunity. You have to understand uh, the challenges that the hiring manager is facing. You have to also think through how does this hire impact other components of that department? You know, because every time you recruit, let's say it's a position, things might change or shift because you might have several, let's say, accountants in the department, but one accountant is going to have certain strengths and than another accountant. And so you might find that you're, you know, changing and reshaping what you're looking for based upon that department. So understanding the business, understanding the departments, I think is a big part of it. We already talked about influencing skills, but I think that's also a large part of what we do in human resources. We're consultants. And so having some strength in that competency is something that I think we all continue to work on. But you touch compensation, you touch benefits, because if you don't understand the value of a compensation package and how all of that ties together, you know, it's going to be more challenging to close a candidate, particularly if they're at a higher level. HR operations, you can do great at recruiting, but if you're not onboarding them successfully or quickly or efficiently, then, you know, that's a fail. So I think good recruiters generally are going to pay attention to a lot of the HR operations uh, components. Of course, internal mobility. You don't, I knew so much about the backgrounds of the candidates who we ended up hiring. Um, I knew their motivators. I knew their drivers. I knew their interests. And, and I was able to add a lot of value when considering internal talent recommendations, which was very valuable. And I think oftentimes people don't stop to think about the talent acquisition team really knows a whole, whole lot about those candidates. And so once they become an employee, uh, I integrated myself into some of those internal mobility discussions because I was able to add value. Uh, compliance systems. I think there's a lot of things that we, that, that I touched that I really didn't recognize until you had to stop and take a hard look. A couple of things stand out to me for a lot of the HR leaders and you look at their career, they're really deep in one area. And then as you progress in your career, you're able to go broader because you've got leadership skills. But it sounds like in your case, not only do you have leadership skills, you were looking at it from a business perspective and a really a systems-wide you know, thinking, right? Systems thinking in terms of how everything played together. And we're probably, I think, diff- being more strategic than some talent acquisition leaders maybe give themselves credit for. We're obviously really intellectually curious about the business and that really served you well as you know, they gave you the nod and said, hey, we'd love you to be Chief Human Resources Officer. And I also know, even though you have had a very successful career, it always hasn't been perfect. You've had your own setbacks. And you recently, I know, gave a TED Talk where you talked about helping people through career setbacks and coaching them through that. And I'd, I'd be interested in your advice for next generation HR leaders around 
who had a career setback, how should they look at those experiences? I think everybody has setbacks as they're growing and as they move through their career journey. And I think many times, and especially earlier mid-career, it can become extremely frustrating and upsetting if something is kind of tilting or, or not working quite the way you had wanted it to. But I can look back now and see there are many silver linings to some of those setbacks. And it's hard to sometimes see those silver linings, but they are there. And sometimes you have to have patience to really be to step away from those setbacks before you can really see that. But being I think being resilient is something something that I learned as a child. I didn't recognize that quite then. But I really do accredit some of my uh, childhood days and just being a competitive gymnast as preparing me for how to deal with some of these setbacks. I was competitive gymnast for most of my youth and even up through high school. And being a gymnast is dealing with a lot of setbacks. I mean, you don't master a skill the very first attempt. So every time I learned a new skill and failed, right? You have to deal with, you know, self-coaching yourself and getting yourself prepared to try it again. And you fail at least a hundred times, if not more. There's, there's a reason why you never see a gymnast's practice sessions on TV, because I bet it would be pretty tough to watch. No, it's a really good example. And also I would just offer, we think things are career setbacks when actually maybe it's the right path for you, right? It's a setback if you don't learn from it. You know, it's a setback if you let it defeat you. But a lot of times, it's really how you view the whatever happened to you. You should know that there's some setbacks that happen, but that can be positive, right? It's all about growth and learning to your point of being a gymnast, right? We're all going to fall down the first time we do it. Absolutely. It takes a lot of courage to get back up after a setback. And setbacks can look and feel different to every person. I'm an optimistic person anyway, which I think helps, but I also always have a focus forward mindset, right? I don't let myself kind of live live in the past for too long. And that's maybe one of my strengths is being an optimist. Um, but it definitely it's definitely something that we all experience. It's just what do you do with the what do you do with that personally and how do you handle that? Yeah, and I think you're really talking about you know, how you can be resilient in a lot of ways. And I wonder if you're willing to share a time when you had to be resilient and how do you build that skill, right? Because if you're early in your career, you may not have had the time to figure that out, right? And you know, what does that look like? How do I get more resilient at work? Yeah, there's been many times, and I think probably any leader that you meet or speak with can tell you many what I call memorable experiences that you'll probably never forget. They were maybe painful at the time, but looking back, you're thankful that it happened, and I'm certainly no different in that regard. There's a couple of examples. I you know, have been a part of a growing company for a large part of my career where there were a lot of stops and starts on projects. And I remember working on an implementation project, which, you know, is one of my very first opportunities to really work on something that significant. And I was learning, right, learning this new system. We were actually automating some of the recruiting operations because early on, we really didn't have an applicant tracking system, as an example. 
And you work on this for six months. You learn all of the intricate details about this new system and you try to align your business processes to it. And I remember getting told that that was no longer going to be a priority and that we were going to shelf that project. And I remember being super frustrated and very disappointed because it was, I mean, I was really excited about that project. And sometimes these decisions just happen. And, you know, I, I look back now and think, yeah, I understand as a leader now why we had to make that decision. But not being in the room when those decisions were being discussed and just hearing the outcome, it's pretty hard, right? I think it was pretty hard for me to understand that. But I look back now and I think about, you know, all the experience that I gained in that six months, you know, everything that I was able to learn about implementing a project, setting a project plan, being the communications plan, thinking through how business operations would change. I still won. I have a phrase that I often say, and I say, I win regardless. So even though I didn't get to implement that project, I still learned a whole lot through that experience. I didn't see that silver lining at the time, but it came full force when, you know, several years later, here I was working on a different implementation that I was more prepared for because I had had that prior experience. Well, that's the right attitude. I think I win regardless because you are gaining experience that you can take with you that makes you better. And, you know, I remember early in my career too, being very frustrated when a project got shelved or sidelined and I think, you know, it's part of that sometimes professional maturity. The second piece was that I remember going to my boss and just saying, can you explain to me, there must be a good reason, right? You're not dumb. <laughs> You're smart. You may understand something I don't understand. What am I missing? And then it was pretty obvious that sometimes we actually as leaders don't share enough with our teams around the business rationale. We just say that project's, we're not mm-hmm. moving forward. And the team's like, well, that's not, I, I don't understand. So part of us, you know, we can be resilient when we're younger, but we also should say, well, can you help us understand the context? And I think this generation today, I think, asks plenty of, give me more context, give me more information. They want that transparency, but it helps you also learn and understand there's business rationale for it. And maybe there's a really good reason that we just don't understand. You hit on something that I'm very passionate about, and that's the why. Uh, you know, I'm, I've always been a why person, and I think I learned early on that that's a really, it, to get my buy-in, I really need the why. And, you know, I had a leader that just didn't really feel it was necessary to share the why for many years. And we learn from leaders that we admire, and that we learn from leaders maybe that we didn't love. And I would say that was one of the lessons that I had told myself, when I become a leader, I'm going to always share the why. Because I remember how frustrating it was to not be thought about enough that I deserved to hear the why. So it is a big part of how I lead today. Anytime on it, whether it's a project or it's feedback on a presentation or it's the word choice that I'm asking somebody to use, I I really proactively work to to explain the why. Great advice to explain the why. And I think as we kind of talked about being resilient is something early in your career is important. But there's other foundational skills that I know you're passionate about that you believe every next-gen HR leader should also learn early in their career. And I wonder if you could speak to a few of those. 
Yes, I, there are some skills that I believe kind of, I want to say kind of like a dying art. And I think a lot of that is this influence of technology, but I think good writing and communication skills. If I'm giving advice to somebody on my team, I'm saying, learn how to write well and communicate well. That will help you stand out. So that's a critical skill that I think is extremely, you know, part of the foundation of a great, great professional and great leader. Secondly, I think critical thinking skills. I think we've also kind of grown into this world where we're very comfortable with people just kind of telling us the answer because it's really quick just to ask someone. I see this actually on social media. I follow some of the neighborhood newsletter, you know, uh, feeds. And it's interesting. And I chuckle every time I see somebody log on and say, you know, who can tell me, you know, the best place to go do X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking, have you even gone to Google and tried to research it yourself? (laughs) So I think critical thinking skills in the professional context is something that I would lean into if I was earlier mid-career. I even see this with my kids and I will intentionally not just answer their question because it's natural instinct to just tell them the answer. But I now make a conscious effort to ask them to go, you know, try to figure out what it is that they're looking for and to come to me if they're unable to find it. Yes, I think that's really important. If we put that in the work context, what I think most managers are looking for from their teams and what sets people apart is that they have done the research. To your point, they've thought about what the problem they're trying to solve and they come with a couple options that are viable. Maybe not perfect, but viable. And you can't do that if you just ask people in the, you know, around the team and just say, hey, who has a solution for this? Or what do you think we should do You know, on this problem? You've got to put some real deep thought into it. The other piece I would piggyback on, you know, when I think about communication skills, it's absolutely a career limiting factor if you are not a skilled communicator, whether it's email, a Word document, PowerPoint, you know, if you can't communicate, you're going to be, you're going to have a, a lesser career, frankly, than you want. But email is one that I would say, please should invest in this and think about being a copywriter and go look at what copywriters do where they leave white space. There's bullet points with what is most important first or the request, and then give the detail below. Because we get so many emails today that if it's all one giant paragraph, it honestly, it's so hard to read that it takes a lot more time for people. And I think you actually just get less impact. Have you seen that too, Suzanne? Absolutely. In fact, if I receive an email that's, you know, really lengthy, and I have to stop it and spend more than a few minutes on it, I am not going to read that email. It's going to sit there and sit there and sit there until either I get time and I'm curious enough that I go dig into it and or otherwise I'm probably never going to read it. And same with PowerPoint. You know, I'm a huge PowerPoint fan. I um, to me, I would rather package my communication in a PowerPoint format than a Word document because I like to think in headlines instead of paragraphs. The same concepts you talked about. I, I tell my team when they're developing their PowerPoints, I don't care if you use 10 slides or 35 slides. Because if you're presenting it, you want to be able to move quickly. You don't want to linger on any slide for too long because people are not going to, they're going to stop paying attention. Same holds true with email. I think crafting your email in a manner that can be read in 60 seconds or less is by far the most effective way. Really good advice for uh, next-gen HR leaders. 
I wonder though, what advice would you give yourself if you went back to your early career, Suzanne, what would you say to yourself in terms of a career advice? Well, it's my personal, it's still on my personal development plan because I didn't start on this early enough, but the art of storytelling, I really think that is a very effective way to communicate with others. And especially being in human resources, I think people can understand and relate to stories. So, and it's not just in human resources that they relate to stories, but we're oftentimes, again, influencing and coaching and it's very powerful if you have a great story to emphasize, you know, what point you're trying to make um, or to find something relatable. So I would have to say to learn how to tell better stories. I wish I could have done that earlier in my career. Good advice. All right. Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Be open and be flexible. The things are evolving and changing very, very quickly. And I think I'm finding for myself that I'm having to pivot a lot more often than I have had to in the past. So I think that is, that's the one word or phrase that I would give you. Be open, be flexible. Suzanne, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Suzanne for sharing her insights on being resilient and her journey to the C-suite. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Jim Shanley, who is a legend in the field of talent management. He's also an incredible developer of talent, as over 50 leaders who have worked for him have gone on to be CHROs. In our conversation, Jim and I will discuss the seven leaders who have influenced his talent philosophy and his leadership style, the five-question test he uses to make a hiring decision and why it works every time, and why the best leaders are talent scouts and how to become one. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.